Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we will be covering our 39th sermon in the Gospel of Mark. The end is in sight. Lord willing, in February, we will be out of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but, but we're there this morning. So Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, I think it's red. But you, you hopefully can find Mark. Use the table of contents if you need to. That's why it's there. Uh, but Mark chapter 14 is where we'll be this morning. I want to start with quoting a, an old hymn, a hymn that came from 1825, which was new to me. So this week, just by chance, I happened to come across this hymn, and I was thinking about our passage, and, and the hymn goes right along with the passage. Maybe you've heard it before, but it's called, Go to Dark Gethsemane. Maybe you've heard that before. I, I've been Baptist my whole life and never heard that. Uh, but, but in it, the, the author, James Montgomery, here's, here's what he writes, and he's writing about our passage, and that's why I open with this. But he says, I go, verse 1, go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch him. Watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. Then verse 2, follow to the judgment hall. View the Lord of life arraigned. Oh, the wormwood and the gall, oh, the pangs his soul sustained. Shun not suffering, shame, or loss. Learn of him to bear the cross. And then it goes on with verse 3 and 4, and those verses end with learn of Christ to die. And then verse 4, Savior, teach us to rise. And, and so the assumption is, as, as, this, as James Montgomery is writing this hymn, he, he understands that, that what happens in Gethsemane and, and following, that that's an example for us to follow. So he says, the very verse, watch Jesus in the garden, and from that, learn to pray. And so that, that's a right, that's, that's a right instinct, I'm going to say. But we have to be careful because what we see happening in Gethsemane and what follows in our passage, the primary purpose, now I use that word carefully, the primary purpose is not for us to learn from Jesus, by example. That's not the primary purpose. Now don't misunderstand me. There will be practical applications for us from the example set, just like the hymn uh, assumes. But the primary purpose of this passage, it's not an example to follow, but rather it's a Messiah at which to marvel and worship. And so as we behold Jesus in Gethsemane, and then Jesus betrayed, we're to see Jesus and be in awe of him and say, oh my God, look at the Messiah. I mean, that, that should be the impulse of our heart. That's because in this passage, as, as, as it's, it's almost downhill now. The, the the suffering, the trial, the crucifixion, it's, it's all moving. It's going to be like a snowball that's gaining momentum. But in this passage, as the trial and crucifixion are getting closer, there, there's a sense of chaos that, that begins to ensue. And, and what we'll see this morning specifically is that Jesus is, is beginning to be abandoned and betrayed. It's like everyone is, is, is leaving him. So there's this mass exodus one after the other, as we'll see in our passage and so Jesus, entering what, what, what I would say is the darkest hour of his life, he's abandoned by all. Everyone leaves. Everyone. Everyone leaves. And, and here he is. And at the end of our passage, he remains. Jesus remains. And that is why we ought to say, oh my God, look at this Messiah who's steadfast in the face of chaos, in the face of abandonment, in the, in the face of betrayal. Christ is steadfast. And so at the outset, I'm just telling you, I don't, I don't want us to lose the steadfastness of our suffering Savior. We know what awaits him. He knows what awaits him, and yet here he is remaining steadfast, plotting the course. 
And it leads, of course, to the accomplishment of our salvation. So, so let's read the passage with that in mind. Let's, let's read. I'm going to begin in verse 32 of Mark 14. So Mark 14, I'm going to start in verse 32. You can follow along as I read. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. And they went, that's Jesus and his disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, and he came and he found his disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came. Judas, one of the twelve. And with Judas, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one that I will kiss, that's the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, that's Judas, he went up, at, went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, that's the crowd, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple preaching, and you didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left, and they fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. Well, let, let's pray. Father, I pray that over these next next 30 minutes or so, that, that our hearts would in fact be captivated by the resolve of Christ, that, that we as a result would, would love our Savior who endured betrayal, who endured shame, and all, all for the sake of, of purchasing salvation for us. May we see as a result of this passage um, a, a greater love for Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, so as we work through this passage, there's, there's three sections. And so the there are three sections. There's section one. There, there's Jesus praying in Gethsemane, him and his disciples. That's verses 32 through 42. Then the second section, verses 43 to 49, you see Jesus betrayed by Judas. And then lastly, the third section, verses 50 through 52, you see abandoned by all. Okay, so, so I get my PowerPoint didn't make it up. Is that right? Okay, so let's, so, so I'll go through for those taking notes. Now, if you miss this, email me and I'll send you the outline. But, but verses 32 through 42, praying in Gethsemane. Verses 43 through 49, betrayed by Judas. And then verses 50 through 52, abandoned by all. 
So first, let's look at praying in Gethsemane, verses 32 through 42. So, so this passage, it picks, off, picks up right where we left off two weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples, they've just left the upper room. They're, they're headed out to the Mount of Olives. And remember, that passage, Jesus told Peter and the disciples, you're all going to betray me. And do you remember what Peter said? He said, no, not me. They may, Lord, but not me. I'm going to follow you even to death. So Peter is self-confident, and Mark records all of the disciples said the same. So they're all saying, we're following you till death. So that's where they're going. Then their next stop is where our passage picks up to, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is, this is probably one of the most well-known scenes in the life of Jesus. One commentator says that Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. It's different because we get a, it's like we get a, a look at the emotional life of our Lord. So we, we get to see what he's feeling and thinking in this intense struggle. So it is certainly a sacred passage. Well, when they get there, notice verse 32, they get there, Jesus says, okay, disciples, you sit right there and wait. Jesus tells, I'm going to go pray, so, so sit here. Then verse 32, he takes Peter, James, and John and goes a little further. Do you see that? So it's the 12 of them, he says, sit here, then he takes three of the 12. It's not abnormal for Jesus to do this. And he picks out, this is his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And, and I think it's specifically... Um, he, he specifically chooses Peter because of the self-confidence that Peter just showed. I'm never going to leave you. And now, just a, a moment later, he's asleep. Right? And Jesus can't count on him for watching one, one simple hour. But so he takes the three, three, Peter, James, and John, and goes a little further. And so here, notice, notice in verses 33 through 34, notice the distress. I mean, you can, you can feel the distress of Jesus. Verse 33 Mark records, he began to be greatly distressed. Not just distressed, but greatly distressed and troubled. And then verse 34, an actual recording of what he says, he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so this is strong language. It conveys the idea of a, of a man who's far away from home, and he's abandoned, and he just wants some companionship. He just wants somebody, but, but he can find none. That, that's how Jesus is feeling. That's the emotion He's greatly distressed. And so, so here, he, he's coming. Throughout Mark's gospel, if you remember, Jesus has been, he's been set on Jerusalem. We've got to go to Jerusalem. Son of man's going to be betrayed. This must happen. There's, there's a divine necessity. But, but here, it's getting really close. We're, we're getting to the point of no return. And, and what we see here in the garden is that Jesus begins to feel the weight of what exactly is going to happen. I mean, his whole being is profoundly shaken as he began to feel the weight of his coming suffering, of, of what was going to happen. So, so th- these, these have physical effects. So Mark shows that this is real emotion. It's a real emotional burden that Jesus feels as, as, he's, as he's awaiting, as he's inching closer and closer to his suffering and his death. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is like the climax. This is uh, the, the turning point of Jesus' experience. Now, after the Garden, he, he's all in, straightforward, no, no turning back, with, with, with eyes set forth, resolved to go. And, and it, it's, it's this moment that it seems that that happens, where he, he's, getting, he's getting near, and he's anxious, and he's, he's worrying, and, and, and please let this pass. But after the garden, after this experience, he's, let us rise, let us go. And so, so this is the climax. One commentator says that Mark understood Gethsemane to be the critical moment in Jesus' life when the full meaning of his submission to the Father confronted him with its immediacy. So he knows when he leaves this garden, it's, it's all starting. And so as he feels the weight of his coming suffering, as his soul is distressed, he, he cries out for another way. Look at, look at the prayer of Jesus, verse 35. 
Going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So he falls on the ground. I don't think this is because he, that's his posture for prayer. I think it's because he can't stand up, it's so he can't bear it. So he falls down to the ground and he prays, if it were possible, let the hour pass. I mean, this is when Luke's, Luke's gospel records these sweats of blood coming from this anxiety, from this pressure. And so Jesus falls down and prays. And in the very next verse, Mark records what he prays. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So in both instances, Jesus is asking for a change of plans. He's asking for another way. Let this hour pass. Remove this cup. That's Jesus saying, if there's any other way, let's, let's do that. I mean, that's what he's asking. In both, this, this hour and this cup, they're both references to the, the coming crucifixion and suffering. And so in light of what, what is immediately in front of him, he says, Father, please, let this happen another way. Now, now let me mention two things about this. First, the reason behind this emotional staggering. I mean, I think, I think it's right to call this an emotional staggering. Jesus isn't afraid of the physical suffering that awaits him. Okay, there, there have been many martyrs who went to the, who went to the, 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 the cross or, or the stake with, with assurance and confidence. Okay, so Jesus isn't afraid of the physical pain. Okay, that, that's, not the, that's not his utmost concern. He's not afraid of the betrayal that's going to come from his, from his best friends, from Judas and the others. That's not why he's so distressed. Though both these things are certainly going to be painful, physically and emotionally, the reason that Jesus is distressed and shaken is to be found in, in the unique death that he would experience. His, his hour and his cup involve giving his life as a ransom for many, on behalf of many, him sacrificially pouring out his own blood. It's not the physical sufferings that will have to endure that trouble him. Rather, it's that he would become sin for sinners, even though he knew no sin. So he was going to be made sin. He who knew no sin was going to be made sin. And he who, who was innocent, perfect, was going to become a curse for those who deserve to be cursed. So that the sinners who deserve to be cursed might go free and escape the wrath of God. Jesus feared the death that no one else would ever need to die or ever be able to experience. Jesus was going to experience God's wrath in order that those who believe in him would not have to face it. I mean, that's what, that's what awaited him. He was going to become sin and be cursed and crushed. No one has ever, ever, ever experienced that before. And no one else ever could. But Jesus, that, that's what awaited him. So maybe we get a, a, a sense of the weight. That's what's going to happen. And, and let us not forget that this is for your salvation, that you might go free. He's going to die in your place, in my place, bearing the wrath of God so that you might be reconciled to God. You might be a friend of God. Don't miss that. If you're here not a Christian, you need to know Jesus died a, a painful death, experienced separation from his Father so that you might be reconciled to his father. That's good news for you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get pretty or perfect. He died for sinners. That's me, that's you. And so, so if you're not a Christian, I would urge you, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He died for you. Turn from your sins, trust in him. Find forgiveness from his blood, from his body that was broken. So Jesus is going to die, experience a death that no one else in the history of the world ever had or ever could that's the reason for his emotional staggering. He, he, in, in becoming sin, he's going to be forsaken, abandoned by his father. 
The Father turns his face away. We just sang it. He cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus in becoming sin was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. And the second thing to note is notice the way that Jesus prays. Verse 35, Mark says that Jesus prayed for the hour to pass if it were possible. And then again in verse 36, he says, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now, I don't think it's incorrect to say that at this point, Jesus doesn't want to go through with the plan. He's feeling it. He wants another way, and he makes known that to his Father. If there's another way, please, that's my desire. I don't want to die on the cross and and bear the sins of the world for, for their sake. I don't want to do that. If there's another way, please let it be known now. That's, he, he's letting his desires be known. But notice, he says, if possible, you can do all things and, and do this if it's your will. So, so Jesus, we can't assume that the issue is whether or not God can or can't remove the hour of the cup. God can do all things. He could remove it. Jesus' request is not my will, but your will. I'm making my desires known to you, but it's, it's your plan. I'll go through with your plan. Whatever you decide, I'm good with it. At the end of the day, Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. Despite his personal desire to, to avoid the forthcoming passion, Jesus submits himself to the will of God with an emphatic, not what I will, but what you will. So that's how he ends this time. Jesus remains steadfast, committed to the will of the Father. And after this intense time of prayer, verse 37, Jesus returns to his three disciples. So see, he goes back to them, and we sense the contrast, right? John says it's just a stone throws away, but it's worlds apart in terms of experience. You have the Messiah, the Son of God, who's, who's laboring over what he's going to do. And then you have snoring disciples over here. Right? It's a totally different world. So Jesus goes back to them. This contrast... And they're asleep. And so notice how Jesus pinpoints Simon Peter. Right? Why do you think he pinpoints him? Even if I have to die, I'm going with you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. Well, here he is just moments later asleep. Jesus, are you asleep, Simon? Jesus says, could you not watch one hour? Is that too much to ask? If you want to die for me, you should probably be able to stay awake for one hour. You said you'd stand with me until death. You can't even watch an hour. So, so the, the sleeping here of disciples, it certainly foreshadows what's going to come in verse 50. But, but Jesus, in verse 38, he says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Stay awake and pray to God. Your temptation, disciples, your, your temptation is to sleep and just, just be passive. Jesus says it must be met with a watching and a praying. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Don't give in. Stay awake. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, the, the process plays itself out again. Having implored the three to watch and pray, Jesus goes again. He prays and he plays the same thing. Don't miss that. The same thing. And he returns. Same thing. They're still asleep. Finally, he goes and prays and comes back a third time. And again, asleep. The failure of the disciples is, is clear. It's on display. And at this point, the hour has come. The, this time for sleeping is done. And so verse 30, 42, Jesus says, Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And so they, they rise. They, they wake up. They probably stand up now and they're, they're going with Jesus. Now before you look at the, the next section, let me make a few points of application here. First, I think we ought to note the humanity of Christ. The humanity of our Messiah in, in these verses. In Mark's account of, of this emotional distress, we can be encouraged because it shows us that Jesus really did suffer emotionally. He did. He wasn't, he wasn't just, oh, it's easy. This is an easy plan. 
just got to go purchase salvation for the world. Easy. Day's work. No, he, this was hard for him. There was emotional turmoil. His soul was greatly troubled. This is a truly human man. Truly human who was, who was going to endure the cross. And so specifically application, because of Jesus' darkest hour here in Gethsemane, he's no stranger to your darkest hour. Right? I know some of you maybe feel like you're in your darkest hour now. You're not alone. Jesus was alone. You're not. He was alone so that you wouldn't have to be alone. That's good news. He suffered. He was abandoned so that you might never be abandoned. So he's with you. Christian, if you're here and you feel alone, be encouraged by this. He understands. You're not alone in your distress and despair. For the Christian, he is with you. He was forsaken that you might never be forsaken. Then, then a second point of application, learning from Christ in the school of prayer. So I do think there are practical applications for us in prayer. So first notice prayer in the face of sorrow. Right? What's a remedy for sorrow? Go to God in prayer. Obviously, Jesus, he had a unique relationship with his father. Right? I'm not saying that we have that same relationship, but it's really close because of him. In the sense, these verses, we still see an example of taking sorrow to the father. As, as the weight of what lies ahead begins to press down on Jesus, he retreats to pray. He doesn't start planning. He doesn't start scheming to find the, 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 the alternate plan. He goes and he prays. He takes his sorrow to the father in prayer. Hear this, there's no sorrow too great that cannot be carried to your Father in prayer. There's no sorrow too great that cannot be carried to your Father in prayer. So take your sorrows to the Lord. Let that be an application. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? Because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. Carry your sorrows to the Lord in prayer. Learn that from Jesus. Second, look at prayer in the face of temptation. Disciples, are, they're charged to watch and pray. Now, they fail to do so, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus gives them the remedy. The remedy against temptation is watch and pray. Now, I'm not going to go too much into this, but I think that, that there's a practice to, to adopt, especially in the face of temptation. Watch and pray. I think that there's a human aspect. Watch. Stay awake. Do your part. Run, flee, whatever the situation calls for, do what you got to do and pray. You need God. You can do all you want. If you're not praying to God, dependent on Him, you're not going to succeed. So watch and pray. I mean, it seems like, at least in my experience, our fight against sin and temptation, we usually tend towards one side at the exclusion of the other. We either say, God, help me, help me, and then we just wait around for God to change us or to make us do something. And that's, that's not what Jesus says. Or the other end, we say, do it. All right, I'm going to fix this. I can do this. I'm going to fix it. And, and that's not what Jesus says. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then the last point on prayer is at the end of the day, Jesus prays for God's will to be done. Right? That, that's how we ought to pray. That's the Lord's prayer. That's his prayer here. This prayer represents a model for believers in that Jesus brings his needs and his desires to God. But at the end of the day, he emphasizes, most of all, his submission to God's will. Prayer should not be focused on primarily on getting what we want, but on aligning our will with God's. What, whatever you want. Here's my ideas, but, but you're God and I'm not. And, and, and I'm content to go with your plan. And so we ought to pray in submission to the Father. Well then, quickly, this, these next, next two sections go more quickly, look next at verses 43 through 49, the betrayal by Judas. 
So verse 43, immediately while, while he was still speaking, Judas came. And so again, like I said, there, there's a, a shift in the demeanor of Jesus. The praying Jesus in the garden now becomes the resolved Jesus. Rise, let us go. He's not saying let's run away, but let's meet my accuser because the time is now. And so here comes Judas, Mark says, one of the twelve, unless you forget. One of the twelve is the one who betrayed him. And, and so they come, and Judas leading this, this band of, of crowd, men and women with swords and clubs, this, this, this posse that's coming out, and Judas had, had prearranged. He said, the one that I kiss, that's the one you're looking for. Now we have to understand that they're not streetlights here. There's no way for them to identify. They all look the same in the dark. So, so Judas and, and the leader say, okay, the one that I go and kiss, that's the one that you're to go after. He's the one that you're to seize and take away under guard. He's the one you want, don't want to ex- escape. And so Judas, verse 45, walks straight up to Jesus, says, Rabbi, as if he can trick Jesus, says, Rabbi, and kisses him, which then sets in motion the arrest. So Mark says they laid hands on him and they seized him. Now, verse 47, it's, a, it's comical in one sense. Every gospel account has this. One of Jesus' disciples takes out the sword and cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. Now, John tells us it was Peter. Maybe Mark is trying to protect the reputation of Peter as if he hasn't already just thrown Peter to the wolves and and showed everything that Peter does and says. But he just says someone does it and cuts off the ear. Now, Mark, he he gives the briefest account of this. He simply records it and moves on. But I want to say is that, that Peter and the other disciples, they continue to miss the point. The fact that someone, probably Peter, brings out a sword, I mean, that, that misses the point. I mean, here's this small group in this huge crowd. Right? What is your sword really going to do? Right? He, he doesn't get it. Jesus doesn't need his sword. That's not why Jesus has come to this hour to, to be led by this heroic Peter with one sword and a whole crowd of swords and clubs. Peter takes one swing, and in light of, of what's coming, this is a pitiful attack, isn't it? Right? How, how brave is Peter? He cuts off an ear, right? Why the ear? And in just a few moments, he's, he's running away with his sword between his legs. And so here, in contrast to Peter, notice Jesus' response to the arrest. Verse 48. He doesn't say, don't take me. He just says, look, look at what's going on, folks. What, look, you're coming out like I'm a robber. You've got clubs. You've got swords. You're acting like a, I'm a criminal, a violent man. I haven't done anything. Do you think I'm a danger to you that you come out like this? Why are you coming out in this manner? He's questioning the manner, but he's also challenging the time. You're doing this under the cover of darkness. Why, why do you feel the need to do this at, at night so that no one sees? If you really wanted me, if, if you really had justification for, for arresting me, I, day after day I was in public teaching day after day after day. Why didn't you take me then? They, they know that this whole scene cries of, of, of injustice. They're, 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 they are aware of what they're doing is wrong. Yet, Jesus doesn't use that to say, I'm not going with you. He doesn't say that. Look at the end of verse 49. You're coming out at, in an unworthy manner. You're coming out at dark. This all screams injustice. But, Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. I'm going with you. Tie me up. You've come for me, let's go. Take me where you want to take me. He acknowledges, in that, in that quote, Jesus acknowledges that all that's happening, his arrest, 
and what's coming, his crucifixion, it's all in fulfillment of scriptures. There's, there's again, this divine necessity. Jesus must suffer. The salvation of man is at stake. He must do it. And so divine necessity is driving even the shady arrest in the garden. Therefore, Jesus goes with them. So even this betrayal by Judas is a fulfillment of the scriptures. It's all God's plan. Over and over, we've said this, but Mark continues to remind us that God's plan is unfolding exactly as it ought to. There are no mistakes, no mess-ups. It's not like God is saying, oh my goodness, they're arresting him? Don't they know he's the savior of the world? That's not the case. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. God is clearly seen as sovereignly ordaining all that comes to pass, which then leads to the last section, verses 50 through 52, our final verses. We see Jesus abandoned by all of his remaining disciples as well as this unnamed young man. So in this verse, first in verse 50, I mean, this is, this is a striking verdict that condemns Peter and all the others in this self-confidence. They all left him and fled. Do you know who all means? They all left him. The self-confident Peter and all of them said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're with you till death. Death isn't even close to happening and they're fleeing. Right? They've just arrested him. And they're running away. They all fled. In the face of this crisis, Jesus is abandoned by his disciples. And in fact, we're not going to hear from them again. We'll hear from Peter when he denies Jesus three times. But we're not going to hear from them again until after the resurrection. Right? They are absent from, from this, this suffering, this passion that Jesus undergoes. They disappear, disappear and Jesus faces trial and crucifixion all alone. But it's not just disciples. Look at verses 51 and 52. They're strange, strange verses, I, I admit. 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, two questions. Who is this man and why does Mark want us to know about him? Two questions that would be helpful to know, but two questions I don't think we can know. <laughs> At least I don't know. The identity of this man, there have been numerous. I, one, one commentator had 13 suggestions as to who this could be. Some of them were physical, some were just, just, just uh, representations uh, of a certain type of person. And so I don't know who it is. I don't know. I can't, I can't tell you. I'd be happy to share with you all 13 options. But I don't think that, that we are supposed to know or that we have to know. Maybe Mark's readers knew exactly who it was. We, we don't, and I think that's okay because, I, I mean, I think this could be that he's, he's representative of every follower of Jesus. So you have the disciples who are fleeing. So, so they may, maybe want to say, well, they knew they were the followers of Jesus because they were the disciples with him his whole life. Well, here's an unnamed man. Do you think the crowd knew who he was? Probably not. And yet even him... At this, at this scene, he's fleeing also. So I, I think this, this serves to show the chaos, but also that, that Jesus is totally abandoned. No one's with him. He is totally alone as he goes forward. And I think he's included to highlight the total abandonment of Jesus. Even this unnamed young man, who probably would not have been known to the crowd, flees and abandoned. Now, I don't think he's not to be seen positively because anytime someone's running away naked, it, it's shame. It's not an honorable thing. So it's to show that, that he's ashamed also, and he's going to his shame, leaving Jesus naked. And so chaos surrounds the rest of Jesus. He's totally abandoned by all his followers. Now, that, that ends the scene. So you have the abandonment by Peter, the disciples, all the way to this unnamed man, which then our closing application, Jesus remains alone. Jesus remains. At the end of the day, they're all gone except for the one, the one they came for. Jesus remains alone. In contrast to everyone else, Jesus 
stays. Though abandoned by all, Jesus remains steadfast in the face of arrest, suffering, and death. Jesus was alone. Being left entirely alone in, in what he was about to do, no one would stand with him. No one could. He would stand alone as Savior because he alone was fit to bear the judgment of God in our place. No one could stand with him. But he stood, and for that we, we ought to be forever grateful. Let's pray.